you'd like, you can turn to page 228 in your pew Bible, or you can open your own copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Samuel. When we left Samuel last week, uh, he had just been ordained, as it were, by God himself, and he was beginning his ministry. And the author of this particular volume had reminded us that all the words of Samuel went forth and that none of them fell to the ground. And today, we're going to get a bird's eye view of his entire ministry from young man to old man. We'll be in chapter 4 through chapter 8 today, and obviously I don't have time to read all of the text to you prior to our exposition, so I'm going to highlight a few of the key passages and then encourage you to read the rest on your own even this week. Please follow along as I begin reading in chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. This is God's word. And a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching, for his heart was trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from the seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Look over at chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, 
he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is God's word. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. The series title is that the king is coming. Today we'll be looking specifically at chapters 4 through 8. The title I've given to this section is The Ark and the judge. At the very outset of this particular sermon, I just want to remind you of the importance of identifying what is the main argument that is running through this text. What is the main argument that the author is trying to make as as we are being led in on this particular historical event in the life of the nation of Israel? It can be summarized this way, God is sovereign over every religion and nation. And especially in days like today, you might want to add at the end of that the word always and an exclamation mark. You know, we're told that in polite company, it's not always wise to discuss politics and religion, and yet it's interesting that throughout the covenant scriptures, God is always talking about politics and religion. In fact, that's his favorite two subjects, it would appear. And that's certainly the case as we open up our copy of God's Word today and and look at the events listed out for us in this section of 1 Samuel. In fact, that will be the overall outline that I would like to share with you today. First of all, God over religion in chapters 4 through 6, and then God over the nations in chapters 7 and 8. Let's begin then by looking at chapter 4. This is a fascinating section. In fact, it begins with a very simple statement. You may see this outlined in your Bible. Chapter 4, verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The editors of your copy of God's Word don't exactly know where to put that, so there's likely a significant space between that and the second line. This is a statement. This is something that gives you the overall big picture of what is happening in this particular part of 1 Samuel. 
We must remember that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom that comes and goes. It's not a kingdom that rises and falls. It's not a kingdom that is subject to time. It's not a kingdom that is subject to elections. It is not a kingdom that is subject to war. It's not a kingdom that is subject to any kind of decay, the likes of which we see working around every other imitation kingdom ever established on the face of this planet. The kingdom of God is stationary, stable, immovable. There has been and only ever will be one incumbent king of the universe, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Human leaders come and go. Dictators come and go. But there is one sovereign who rules over everything, and the scope of his sovereignty vastly overshoots anything we can imagine in the realm of religion or politics. And therefore, beloved, in times like this, we as Christians ought to be the least anxious, the least concerned, the heaviest sleepers. We don't need to go to the mass media to get the regular circulation of information that is aimed only at keeping us addicted to watching and listening and scrolling and making us agitated and angry. You can skip all that. You can also skip all the angry little podcasters who are screaming into their microphone, giving living commentary of what's happening moment by moment. You can skip those big evangelical pastors and celebrities who are making money off selling you books about how this can be fit into their little chart of the end times. You can step back from all of that and you can just say with absolute resolution and comfort when you put down your head at night on your pillow, oh, praise the Lord that the sovereign king of the universe has not only foreseen all of this, but has ordained it, established it, and is working it out to meticulous detail ultimately for his glory. Amen? Amen. Now we could close in prayer, <laughs> but I'm not going to. Because this text helps us to see something that is so relevant and helpful for us today. I want you to notice at the beginning that chapter 4 is a story of God's intentional surrender. The people drop lines against each other. You've got the Philistines who were the historic enemies of Israel. And then you've got Israel and they're ready to fight. And as is typically the pattern in ancient warfare, they go to battle hand to hand. And during this battle, 3,000 of the men of Israel are killed. And so the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, get this brilliant idea that the way to ensure that the next time they go to battle they're going to win is that they're going to bring God to the battlefield. And so they send for the messengers who are able to bring God, the priests and the Levites, and they say, we're losing the battle because Yahweh isn't with us. Now notice that they were thinking the same way as the pagans were thinking because now in their mind, if the golden box that contains the tablets of the covenant isn't here, then God's not here. It was not uncommon for forces to bring out their idols to the battlefield so that they could pray to them in order that they would win the battle. They are treating God not like the invisible God that he wants to be, not like the God who said, do not make an image of me, not like the God who says, I will fight your battles and you have to trust me. They're treating him as if he is nothing better than some golden mascot that they could drag out and rub for good luck and then go out there into the battle and win. 
And so they send the priest to get it, and Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons of Eli, arrive, and everybody is thrilled. They all raise this huge shout. It's like causing a tremor. It registered on the Richter scale, had there been one at the time. And in fact, the voice of the people is so loud that two miles away, the assembled army of the Philistines are terrified. They're saying, what's going on over there? Something has occurred. Oh, yes, something's occurred. You see, their God has arrived. And to the Philistines, this was terrifying because in their pagan mindset, that means that their God has now shown up and now, theoretically, he might do to them what he did to the Egyptians. And so terror moves throughout the Philistine army until somebody comes along, kind of the Henry V of of the Philistines. Remember that in Shakespeare? And this is kind of his like St. Crispin's Day speech. And he says to the Philistines, hey, get your act together. If we don't defeat these people, they're going to take us all and kill us. They're going to make our wives and children slaves. They're going to take over our cities and all of our goods. Man up and go fight. And so that's exactly what they do. And they get up there and they fight. And to everybody's shock, not only are 4,000 men killed, like in the first battle, 30,000 men lose their lives of the people of Israel. Israel is utterly and completely wiped out. Their army, what's left of them, scatter and go to their own homes, it says. Everybody who's not killed flees. And the fulfillment of the prophecy that we saw last week about the sons of Eli is fulfilled. Hophni and Phinehas are killed. And the ark of God is captured. Now, from their perspective, the ark of God is captured, but from our perspective, God himself allows the ark to be intentionally captured because he has got a plan and he is going to unfold it in the following chapter. The key things we need to see there in chapter 4 is over and over again the faith that people are putting in this box and not in their God. This chapter continues to unfold with the story that I read to you earlier. There is a man from Benjamin who runs some 20 miles to get back to Shiloh. And he gets back there with the news. And what's so fascinating about this to me is that there's Eli out there, old blind Eli, and he is sitting on a chair out there by the road. And here comes this Benjamite who has just run a marathon, come back from the battle the very same day, and he is running to the city and runs right by blind Eli and into the city. And he tells people in the city about what has happened. And the city begins to wail and they begin to mourn and they begin to cry and they begin to shout. And there's old Eli outside the city gates on the road looking back, trying to figure out what he's hearing, confused. And he says, what's going on? And this man comes out and he meets up with this old man, the high priest, the religious ruler of Israel, and he's sitting on his chair, and he's by the road, and he's by the gate, and he looks up at this man, panting, exhausted, devastated, and with a wailing 
of the wives in the background in the city screaming in their mourning agony over the death of their husbands, and the destitute children being told for the first time that their father is not coming home, an entire city convinced that with the army gone, they are sitting ducks for whatever other pagan tribe wants to simply sweep in and destroy them, which in fact they did. Eli looks up at this young man and he says, how did it go, my son? And the man delivers the news in three successive blows, like a baseball bat against his head. Number one, the army has been destroyed. They've all been routed. They're all dead. Number two, your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, the ones who were set apart by God, consecrated by him to carry the ark, they're dead. Your army's gone. Your family's gone. And third, your God is gone. The ark has been captured. And it says when he heard that the ark had been captured, that's when he fell over backwards. And he broke his neck and he died. And the text adds this really interesting statement. It says he was heavy. <laughs> he was old and he was heavy. 98. And uh, not lean. But there's more than just what we picture a large, rotund, old man falling back and breaking his neck. That was part of it, but there was something way more than physical. There's, there's a, a double meaning here even in this. He, he was a man who had a lot of weight, is how you could translate that. And that word weight is the word kavod. It's used elsewhere in Scripture to talk of God. It's a word that means glory. That's how God's glory is described, as heaviness, as weight, as substance. And this was a man of, of physical weight, yes, but he was a man of substance, he was a man of importance, and he was also a weight and a drag on the nation of Israel because of the wickedness of his sons. And all of that culminates in this very graphic depiction of what is happening, the toppling of an empire. And over he goes, and then he dies. And the drama continues because inside the city you have the wife of Phineas, and she comes to the realization now that her husband is dead, uh, that there is no hope for her. Her, her father-in-law is dead. Her household is wiped out. She's pregnant. She goes into labor. She gives birth to a son. And while the women are trying to encourage her, she does the same thing as Hannah. She ignores everybody and she cries out. But she doesn't cry out to Yahweh. She just cries out in general. And she says, the name of this child is going to be Ichabod because the glory of God has now departed. You see, she was just as blind as the rest of them. She associated the glory of God with the ark. The ark had been captured, but the glory of God had left the building a long time ago. The glory of God was not in the golden box. The glory of God was in Yahweh himself, and he had already forsaken the people. I know that because there's a very interesting statement that is made to us in a psalm written by Asaph, Psalm 78, beginning in verse 56. Just listen. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, 
for they provoked him to anger with their high places, and they moved him with jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, for he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. It was God who delivered over his own glory. It was God who utterly rejected those Israelites, and it was God who allowed Shiloh to fall. Not only was the ark captured, but we know from this and from Jeremiah 7 that the entire city fell, the tabernacle fell, everything was wiped out, everything was taken away. Now, in case you think that might be the end of the story, look at chapter 5, entitled this, Total Power. From intentional surrender, we see chapter 5 in the total power. Uh, This is a very brief section. I'm not going to say too much about it because it reads very easily. Begins by considering three cities. The first one is Ashdod. The uh, Philistines don't quite know what to do now that they've captured the ark. It's almost as if they weren't expecting to get it. Now all of a sudden they've got to figure out what to do with it. And so they take it to the place where they would normally take something like that, and that is the temple of their God, because they want to honor their God for the great victory that he allowed them to have. And so they bring it to their God, Dagon. Now, if you're from the south, you thought I just said something else, but no, it's the name, Dagon. And what they do, because they're syncretistic, because they think all gods kind of function the same, they take this God, which apparently wasn't as strong as they thought, stronger than the Egyptian gods, but not stronger than their gods. So this kind of puts them in a good spot. The Philistines have just gone up in ranking. And so they bring the ark into the temple of Dagon. Now, why is it Nashdod? Well, it's because the other temple that had been made for Dagon was destroyed when Samson was given his strength back for one more time. And you remember from Judges 16, he reached out for the pillars of that massive temple that was there to honor the god Dagon, and he pulled in those columns, and the entire roof came down, and he died in a mass murder-suicide. So they had to find a new place to put their god, and so they put him in Ashdod. And they bring in the ark, and they put it there in front of him, more or less to say, now this god can serve you. And the next morning, when everybody went out to see it, because you know word would have gotten around, they were probably selling tickets, there was a long line, hey, come see the ark we captured. They go inside, and what's happened? Well, Dagon has fallen over. That's rather embarrassing, isn't it? Somebody's tipped over our God. Hate it when this happens. And so the priest, no doubt, ran in there, embarrassed, and they picked up poor Dagon, because he had fallen over. He had fallen over, and he was eating the dust, just like the serpent has said he was going to eat the dust. You see, all of God's enemies eat the dust. And he's there face down, and they pick him up, and they put him up again. But the next day, things got even worse. They came in, and Dagon wasn't only fallen off his perch, but he had also been executed. He had also been treated the way that they treated the kings of the ancient world in order to bring back a trophy of what had been done by conquering them. And God himself, Yahweh, caused Dagon before his very face to fall down, face down, be decapitated, and had his hands cut off. And right there on the threshold, you see this image of an idol, nothing more than a stump, 
the head and the hands on the threshold where you walk in, such that for the people to enter that temple, they had to literally step over the head and the hands of their defeated God. And that is why it says from that point on, nobody walked over that threshold. It was such a humiliating disgrace. But that wasn't the only thing that happened. Because God was now allowing himself to be taken captive, he brought into that area like a Trojan horse these plagues upon the people. You see, you don't want to corner Yahweh. And they had done that. They'd brought him in. They'd tried to put him in a room. He says, you're not going to hold me. And he kills their God, and then he starts killing their people. And the text says that the people began to get tumors. Now, the word tumors is a little bit difficult to translate. We don't know exactly what that means. It could be boils. It could be visible tumors. Uh, There's a lot of different translations for this word, but the fact of the matter is they knew they were sick and they had something visible, something that was troubling them. And so what they did was they got rid of the ark. They said, this is clearly bad for us. We've got to move this on. And so they sent it over to Gath. And before long, the people in, in Gath realize what is going on. It starts happening to them and they're all getting sick. And so they send it over to Ekron. By that point, they're saying, are you trying to kill us over here? So we don't want that thing either. It's amazing. The ark, the very precious example of the presence of God in the eyes of the people, the very thing that the Philistines wanted to capture has now become toxic to them, and they're playing hot potato. Nobody wants it. And then finally, someone comes up with this brilliant idea. Hey, let's send it back. Let's send it back. But you know, we should probably apologize for what we have done. And so they put a guilt offering in. Now, because they're not instructed by Yahweh, their priests don't know what to do. What's a guilt offering for this Yahweh? I don't know. And they have a conversation and they bring in all the consultants because, you know, that's what you do and you don't know what to do. And the consultants come in and the religious guys sit around the table and they say, well, uh, let's see. Clearly, uh, his being here causes us all to have tumors. So, oh, I have an idea. Let's make some golden tumors. Now, I don't know if maybe it was late and he was being sarcastic and they all just like went along with it. It seems like a ridiculous thing to do, doesn't it? Well, it might be to us, but in the ancient Near East, that was one of the ways that you appeased a God was that you tried to identify the very thing that was happening to you that you wanted to stop, and you brought that to him in a form of a sacrifice. That's why in some of the pagan religions, people would would even sacrifice their own children because they're saying what we want is children. Our children, our, our, our mortality rate is high, and therefore we're going to kill a child in the hopes that you will not kill the rest of our children. So they bring these golden tumors, and we find out later golden mice as well. We don't know exactly the content of that. Some mice were obviously, or there's an infestation of mice as well. And so they make golden tumors, golden mice, put it in a box, put it beside this ark, and they send it back. But they do it in a really interesting way. I love this. They do it in a very interesting way. The um, text here in chapter 5, if you look at this, It says, they were struck with tumors, and the cry went all the way up to heaven. And the ark of the Lord, chapter 6, was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And so this idea that there is a God among them, and he's causing them to suffer, prompts all the things that we just talked about. We're going to call this a universal wonder, as it were. And the plan they come up with to send everything back has to be executed by somebody, and they don't want to do it themselves 
because they understand that this God could destroy them if they get close to the ark. So they come up with an idea, and that is to put it on a wagon and have two milk cows carry it. You'll notice if you read this later on, it's very strategic though. First of all, milk cows. You generally didn't tow anything with milk cows. That wasn't their job. Their job was to give milk. Their job was not to carry heavy freight. Secondly, uh, these were cows that had never had a yoke on them before, so they'd never been broken in. They'd never been trained. They'd never done this before. This was brand new to them. And cows aren't just really smart animals that would just figure it out that, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. You got to train them. And then thirdly, to make it even more difficult, they said, we want a milking cow who is nursing one of their young, and we're going to take their young away. We're going to put their young in the barn, and we're going to send the cows the other direction. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I know that that nursing cow, when they hear the sound of their calf, is going to want to turn around and go back and nurse the calf. That's why they did it this way. And, and the priest said, this is the plan then. If these two cows who don't normally pull stuff, who have never been trained to do so and have every reason to turn back, if they march forward the 1920 miles over into Israelite territory, then we'll know that it was God who brought these tumors and not something else. And so that's the plan. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, it says that they didn't divert to the right or the left. These two milking cows performed flawlessly. They did exactly what milking cows don't normally do. And they brought that ark all the way back into Israeli territory. God is a God over the religions. God is a God over every religion. He is the God who allowed himself to be surrendered to them in order that he might destroy them. He demonstrates his power over them in all of their capital cities. He brings wonder to them as they try to give a guilt offering in order to pacify him. And then, by a miracle, allows himself to be delivered back to his people. And the text says, though, at the end of chapter 6, very interesting... He comes back into Israeli territory, into Beth Shemesh. And uh, here's what happens. It says in Beth Shemesh, verse 19, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people a great blow. This is a universal wonder. It's not just the pagan nations that are brought to their knees because of the power of Yahweh. It's even his own people. You see, he's not a respecter of persons. He will give the Philistines diseases that kill them because they've dishonored him, and he will give his own people instantaneous death for dishonoring him. He doesn't play favorites. His glory is not going to be diminished and trampled on by anyone. And so what's fascinating is that the author basically bookends this with these two statements. He says at the beginning in chapter 4 and verse 7 regarding the Philistines, he says the Philistines were afraid for they said a God has come into the camp and they said woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. And then towards the end of this section in chapter 6 verse 4, 
He says that they have turned once again. And now as they are considering the reality of it, they are once again in fear. But this time their fear has turned not afraid of Yahweh and therefore capturing him, but afraid of Yahweh because they've captured him. They got him, and now they want to get rid of him. They want to find a way to give glory to the God of Israel. And then when the God of Israel goes back to Israel, the people of Israel don't give glory to the God of Israel, and the God of Israel kills 70 of the people of Israel. God is not a mascot. He's not going to be paraded out into battle and help you win just because you think he's on your side. And this is very relevant in the next portion of the text because he's not only the God over religion, but he's also the God over the nations. Look at chapter 7 and chapter 8. This is, again, a pretty straightforward section. We don't need to spend a lot of time here because it just lays out for us clearly. In chapter 7, we see, first of all, what we'll call the situation. Verse 4 says, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served Yahweh only. There's been a conversion. There's been a revival. For 20 years, the ark was with the people again, but they were continuing on in their wickedness. They were continuing on in their pagan idolatry. And when Samuel finally does begin to speak to them again, he calls them to repentance. And it's interesting, he says, put away these gods. The Baals and the Ashtaroth, that was the male and the female deity of the fertility gods. They had run after these, gone whoring after these other gods. He says that as a consequence, you will be punished. And so when Samuel brings the people together, he says, you must repent. You must turn back to the Lord. That is what they do. And so verse 5, Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered together, and he drew out water, and he poured it out. It was symbolic of the hearts of the people being poured out, the prayers of the people being poured out. This wasn't a, a special offering. There's no other old covenant reference to this kind of offering. It was a symbol. And he pours it out. And he says, this is us pouring out our heart to you. We have sinned against Yahweh. And he judges the people there. And when the Philistines heard this, they decided they were going to take one more shot. This time they weren't going to capture the ark. They were just going to go in and wipe out the people. Remember, they have been a people bereft of their men. They have been a people who are just now beginning to rebuild their army. Uh, there are people who are just now perhaps beginning to rebuild their industries, rebuild their cities, their walls. Now is the chance. If you're not going to have this chance for long, the Philistines thought. Now is the chance to go in and get them. They're still weak. And so they all gather together and they surround them. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of these Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb, offered it as a whole burnt offering. He cries out to Yahweh. And as he was giving up that offering, Yahweh began to thunder. Remember Hannah? She was thundering. Same idea. God thunders. And as the smoke of that burnt offering goes up, he turns on the Philistines. Even though they'd given him back, even though they'd returned the ark, he goes against the Philistines and he himself destroys them. 
Verse 11, and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. And Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now Yahweh has helped us. I want you to see the significance of the naming of this. Two events within the text, two events within this piece of Hebrew literature, two namings that the readers would have immediately clued into. You have a naming in chapter four of Ichabod and a naming in chapter seven of Ebenezer. Ichabod, the glory has departed. Ebenezer, Yahweh is fighting for us. He had been taken away and now he's returned. Listen, friends, there's gonna be seasons where it seems like God has left us. There's gonna be, be seasons where it seems very difficult, where the word of God is scarce, where there is a famine in the land, as the prophets say. There's going to be these times where you look around and say, I can't think of any faithful church anywhere near where I live. Times where you see people that used to be faithful to God's word fall into some kind of immorality. There have been hundreds of years of church history where there's literally been nowhere to go where somebody upholds and preaches the gospel. There have been generations of Christians who have endured a Christless Christianity in the Holy Roman Empire or under the Roman Catholic control of the church or under dead denominations, or even today under big evangelicalism, which has no gospel left anymore in many of them. It's merely a spectator event where it's all about meeting your felt needs and you sort of go in and you get to hear the music you want to hear and the type of preaching you want to hear. It's all about you. And you might think, well, the glory's left the building. God's left us behind. And in a sense, it's easy to feel that way. But let me remind you from this text that there is always an Ebenezer. There is always a reminder that he will have a remnant and he will never totally forsake his people. He never did that with ethnic national Israel and he is not going to do with that with, as, as Paul says, the, the Israel of God. There will never be an abandonment. There will never be a forsaking. There will never ultimately be anyone who is allowed uh, to, to, to drift off and be forgotten by God. There will always be that time when somebody rises up to bring back that truth, to bring back that repentance, revival, and walking with him. And so the people did that. But lest you think this was the end of the story, the author puts a little twist on. Look at chapter 8. They have a solution to this problem that they're in, namely the fact that Samuel has put his sons as judges over the people and his sons do not walk in his ways. It doesn't say his sons were as wicked as Hophni and Phinehas, but his sons were not godly men. His sons were greedy. His sons were in it for the money. And so uh, the people say, we're tired of this. We're, we're, we're tired of uh, hypocritical uh, religious leadership. We had enough of this. This is like another generation. First Eli, now you. I mean, we have had decades now of unqualified spiritual leadership. And we're fed up with it. And so what they say is instead of this priestly order that is supposed to be governing us, we're going to turn our attention and we're going to imitate the nations around us. And it seems like for them, this whole king thing is working out. So we want a king too. 
We're tired of being governed by God. We're tired of being governed by the religious system. Tired of being governed by high priests and priests that were established through the Levitical line by God. Give us a king instead. And Samuel can't talk him out of it. And Samuel goes to Yahweh and he says, I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm the, I'm the religious leader here. I'm the one who's supposed to be judging the people. I'm supposed to be keeping them faithful to you. And here they are, they're running off, and no matter what I say, they won't change their mind. And, and Yahweh comes back to him with that fascinating statement in chapter 8, where he says, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. The people have rejected me. Samuel's channeling the heartbreak of God. He, he knows the rejection. And Yahweh says, three times, you should look it up in your text, Obey the people, obey the people, obey the people. Yahweh is telling Samuel to obey the people. This doesn't make sense to Samuel. Samuel is one of the first people to hear from Yahweh in decades. God had been silent. God had left his people. God had departed. The glory was gone. Ichabod was written over the door. Samuel comes along and it seems like they've been revived. There's this revival of the people. They repent. They pour out their hearts to God. He builds a stone to say that God is with us. He is here. He has not forsaken us. Why then would God say to Samuel, obey the people and set up a monarchy. That's because in the eternal covenant of God and in the eternal plan of redemptive history, he was going to establish a king who was going to point one day to the better king. He was going to establish a David who would point one day to the perfect David. And none of this was known to the people at the time as it was unfolding. And so Samuel goes back to the people and he does what he's told. Here's the solution. Samuel does what the people want him to do. But he gets the last word. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And here's the phrase. Notice it over and over again. He will take. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground and some to reap his harvest and to make the implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. There you go. You're going to lose your sons to this man. He's going to take your sons. He's going to make them soldiers. He's going to make them farmers. He's going to make them blacksmiths to build up his great army. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. This is the crisis point of the narrative. 
This is where it can go one of two directions. Do the people then respond and cry out and they acknowledge their stupidity and they repent of that and they say, no, we don't want a king. We don't want political solutions. We want to trust the Lord. We know there's no hope in human leadership. We, we, we were foolish to ask for that. We want to go back to you. You be our God. You be the one who fight our battles for us. He has just done that for them in their destruction of the Philistines and overnight they have forgotten. Is this the time when they turn? Everyone listening to this is wondering. And verse 19 through 22 give you the answer. But the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they say, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the ears of Yahweh. It's a very intimate scene, isn't it? It's like a child crawling up onto your lap and craning their neck so that they can whisper something into your ear. It's the intimacy of Samuel and Yahweh. He gets up right, right in this Yahweh's ear. He speaks to him. He told him everything that's gone on. All the words of the people. He has to go to Yahweh with the same feeling he had when he goes to Eli. Remember Eli said, God do everything to you and worse if you don't tell me everything that Yahweh said to you. And with that feeling in his stomach, he has to go and and lay out for Eli everything that Yahweh has said. And now all these years later, he's an old man, and he has to go into Yahweh and tell Yahweh everything the people have said. They don't want you. They don't believe in you anymore. They don't love you. They don't want to serve you. They're really not that afraid of you and in their collective wisdom have determined that it would be much better off for them to imitate the gods of the nations that you have destroyed before their very eyes than to continue trusting you. You've been replaced. You're no longer wanted here. And so this chapter ends with the statement, and Yahweh said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his own city. Every man went to a city who survived the battle that killed 30,000. And now the men who were born after go to their own cities again. Not because they've been defeated by the Philistines, but because they've defeated the Philistines and gotten rid of their God. This is going to set up the next section of Samuel, which is so important for us to understand. Because if you're going to understand how the Bible fits together, you have to understand the covenants that he made. You have to understand how these people fit together and where they stand in this long line of redemptive history. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David. And we're going to get to David. 
You know, the great joy that we have on this side of it, as we get to understand now more clearly what the Old Testament was saying, is that all of this was in God's perfect plan from the very beginning. And you're going to see that begin to unfold as we look at the next several chapters. But for now, as we always do, let us remember Christ. You know, in much the same way, Christ gave himself over to wicked men. It was an intentional surrender in the garden, wasn't it? And they came and they were looking for him. And he asked who they're looking for. And they said him. And he said, then let these other people go. And he allowed himself to be taken in. He allowed himself to be put before the very highest ranking men. But instead of causing their destruction, he allowed them to cause his destruction. Instead of making them topple over forward and cutting off their head and hands, he allowed them to ram a crown of thorn upon his head and to pierce his hands to a cross. But just like what Yahweh did to the Philistines, Christ did to Satan, because in that moment of victory was Satan's defeat. Amen? It was in killing Christ that he signed his own death warrant and his own head be crushed. And so as we consider these matters, look to Christ, your righteousness. He is greater than any army. He's greater than any leader. His merit is all that you need to plead in the last day. And may he also be our confidence he is the king over all the nations. He is the king who rules the world. And every single thing that is going on right now in our world, in every nation, is under the sovereign control of a holy God. And in that we take our ultimate confidence, peace, and rest. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these words contained for us in the book of Samuel. You have been kind to reveal them to us and to preserve them for all these years that we might be able to look back now and see that they are just as relevant for us as they were the day they were written. We know that you will see fit to work through nations to accomplish your glory. We don't aim to call back any nation on some political level to turn to you. We know that that is not how you operate, that your kingdom is not of this world, that your kingdom is eternal, that our citizenship is not even in this world, but is in the heavens. And so I pray that you would help us to be wise and careful, guard us from a diet of that which would cause us fear or anxiety. Instead, turn us to the eternal truths that are contained in your word that bring true joy and peace, happiness and hope as we look forward to your return. So come, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.